That was the opening to The Innocence, released by 20th Century Fox in 1961. And you're listening to Classic Movie Reviews at ClassicMovieReviews.net, or you can find us on iTunes. Just do a search for Classic Movie Reviews. And I'm Matt Johnson, coming to you from rainy, windy, stormy... Seattle. I'm uh, Bob Johnson, and I'm uh, checking in from Los Angeles, where it's a nice fall morning, but no rain. No rain. It's still it's no still rain. a desert. So that's true. Nothing there has changed since two weeks ago. It, it, it'll it'll seem like it's going to rain, and then it just doesn't do anything, right? Exactly. <laughs> that's exactly right. Well, this movie is. Uh, even better after I've seen it now, after several years of not seeing it. I remember seeing it when I was in college, and I just really liked it, but I left the theater thinking, what was going on? And so did, when I finished it this time, I finished it, and I said to myself, what's going on? <laughs> I still haven't figured it out. <laughs> yeah. How did it do in the box office? You, you usually well, have that... Yeah, I've got all that here. Uh, it it did okay. I mean, it kind of broke even, made a small profit. But what happened was years later, it took on a, it became very popular years years after it was released in 1961. So I don't have any information on what it makes on uh, residuals or royalties or anything like that. But I'm assuming it probably came out okay in the long run. I I read a I read a fascinating background on the director Jack Clayton. Uh huh. He uh, did some really good movies. Um, Room at the Top from 1959 with Lawrence Harvey, who was a, kind of an awful person in that movie, and The Great Gatsby, the 1974 edition. Both those movies were very successful. But Mr. Clayton, I guess, had a very strong uh, temper. Apparently, he got mad at some studio meeting on the first floor of the studio here in Los Angeles. He picked up a chair and threw it out the window of the uh, studio, and it was on the first floor. And it hit on top; it landed on top of an executive's Mercedes. Uh-oh. I thought, "Wow, that's not good. That's bad form. <laughs> Very bad form." I'm assuming it was probably a new Mercedes too. <laughs> I'm sure it was, and top of the line, well, probably so. <laughs> so he was known to be a little uh, volatile, as I think many of these directors could be if uh, provoked. I think they have a certain way they want to do things and if it doesn't go their way they they don't like it apparently with him he got physical here take that chair (laughs) Uh, so anyway the movie is just amazingly well done i tell you well deborah carr who stars in the movie uh, and plays the role of the governess miss gibbons uh says that she thinks this is her best role so, I know, I read that, yeah. That's saying something, because she's been in some other really good movies. She made so many good movies. The King and I, From Here to Eternity, and on and on. One that that, that, that someday we might do is uh, one she made with Robert Mitchum. takes place in Australia called The Sundowners. It's about a family, she and Robert Mitchum and their son and, a, and another guy, and they go and round up sheep and herd sheep, and they're always moving around Australia in a covered wagon. It's a really good movie. 
from the late, I think the late 50s or early 60s. Oh, that sounds interesting. Yeah, I'd definitely be up for more Deborah Carr. No kidding. What a beautiful woman. I think she was the, it was interesting because I think she was uh, in the documentary that we watched that came along yes. with the movie. They were saying that maybe she was a little too old to play the the role, but I think it actually kind of added to the creepiness of it, the fact that she was probably, you know, I don't know exactly how old she was, but probably around 40 at this time. I never, I watched the movie, well, I went to the movie, then I watched it a couple of times, and I never really thought of her as being too old for the part until I watched that documentary, and then I thought, you know, even at that, I think she fit that role perfectly. I oh, just, totally. I, I don't think she, her age really, it didn't affect me at all. No, I think it was appropriate for the what they were trying to do. Uh, it's said in some of the other material that I looked at that they took the story from a novel by Henry James, have not read that novel, and that the screenplay for the movie was largely written by Truman Capote. Yeah, that's awesome. I, I just yeah, I, That really got I, me wanting to watch the movie when I found out that he, he was... Uh, one of the writers. I think I read that he was working on this screenplay while he was also doing the research and putting together the book for In Cold Blood, which probably is his finest work, I think. Yeah, he was he was doing both at the same time, yeah. Well, there's some there's some great to. lines in the movie. We can get to them in a, oh, in there a, are. In a bit, but yeah. uh, Flora in particular, who is played... Uh, who... Pamela Franklin. She's had a long career in film and television. One movie that she did in the late sixties, The Prime of Miss Jane Brody, is is a really excellent movie. Uh, she, yeah, looked, she, she looked she looked really familiar. I, I I kept wanting to say that she was in those uh, Escape from Witch Mountain movies, but that that was somebody else uh, later. But she has done a lot of film. Yeah, she had she had quite a few good lines in the movie. One of my favorites was. Flora, yes, Miss Gibbons dear. Didn't you say last night that Miles was coming home? Oh look. The lucky spider, and it's eating a butterfly. I know. <laughs> Thank you for sharing that. And another one that she said was, There are a lot of empty rooms. I said to Mrs. Gross, I wish there was some way of sleeping in several rooms at once. Mrs. Gross was quite startled by the thought. I don't wonder. Stuff and nonsense, she said. Stuff and nonsense. <laughs> <laughs> I know. That was you odd. Know, those kids were uh, both angelic sweet and creepy all at the same time for me yeah and and the the actor that played miles martin stephens yes he uh he went on to be a really well-known architect in his later life but uh, he made a movie in 1960 before this one called village of the damned yeah i think he could get typecast as sort of a <laughs> creepy a disturbed and child. Disturbed child. If uh, you just looked at these two movies, uh, this one and Village oh, of the Damned, uh, and then I, I remember, I remember what I was going to say about Pamela Franklin is I think this was her first film. Oh, okay. Oh, I think you're right. Yeah, because the documentary did talk about they had looked at a few hundred different actresses, uh, and she was she just had that the the right mix of sort of what you said the angelic and and the also the ability to kind of be a little creepy. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. In terms of scenes, should we move to some of those? There's so many. I... Well, yeah, the the opening was just awesome. Oh, like, I can sure only was. imagine that this would have been amazing to see in CinemaScope in black and white. And the black and white was really well done. It was 
it was almost kind of a film noir, uh, high contrast, black and white. Oh, definitely. You know, I, I don't think it would be nearly as creepy or as much fun if it were in the deluxe or Technicolor. I remember sitting in the theater in Boulder when this uh, when I went to this, and it it's opens with with a dark screen, and I thought, oh, the, the film isn't working. I was sitting there, they, they can't get the film to work, and then it started with that opening in and out of the logo and what well, I thought was that creepy song. Whoa. Yeah, that song was creepy, and what was also creepy is they didn't play the 20th Century Fox banner music over their logo. It just continued no. with that creepy song, which I think was just, that was a good choice. And that then, may be the only time that they didn't open a 20th Century Fox movie without that big uh, opening. It's the only time I can remember. But the, then we get to the, the very first scene, well, after the opening where she's praying, and it's just totally black and white. Like, literally, it's there's no grays in that, that opening scene. No. It's just black and white. And then we're at the uncle's oh, man. residence in London, I think. And he, he's the most disinterested relative I can imagine. He, he even says to uh, Miss Gibbons that... Do you have an imagination? Oh, oh, yes, I can answer that. Yes. Good. Truth is very seldom understood by any but imaginative persons, and I want to be quite truthful. I'm a bachelor, but not, I might add, a lonely one. I spend a great deal of time abroad, and as for my London life, well... It amuses me, but it's not the sort of amusement that one could suitably share with children. In brief, Miss Giddens, I'm a very selfish fellow. I'm the last man alive to be saddled so suddenly and so awkwardly with two orphaned infants. It's most unfortunate, for I have no room for them, neither mentally nor emotionally. Does that seem quite heartless? I was like, wow. I know. And, and he has no name uh, in the script. It's just the uncle. <clears throat> a wonderful actor, though. Michael Redgrave plays that role. And his uh, daughters have been have gone on to be very successful in the industry as well. Oh, yeah, but for my, sure. He, he could not have been any less interested. And I then I got to thinking, okay, is he part of this grand scheme in the movie that's got me so confused? Is he, is, is, was he setting this up? To actually happen oh i don't know i didn't I, he, he doesn't factor into my theory so i don't know he just seemed like somebody that had a lot of money and was a playboy and didn't want to be bothered with taking care of kids because it would interfere with his his womanizing <laughs> that was really clear don't call <laughs> me don't write me don't do anything i'm leaving and and poor miss gibbons uh, again <clears throat> played by deborah carr uh, seems so out of her depth in that interview. Uh, this is the first job that she's had as a governess, and she's growing up in a very sheltered home. Her father is a is a priest or a minister, uh, and they have they. She grew up in a very small house with lots of uh, siblings. It's kind of like this huge change for her. To be... she just seemed to yeah, she seemed totally repressed. Yeah, and and we find out later that she's yeah, she's definitely in over her head. Uh, and then the next scene is they're on their way to the country house, and all I could think is, like, oh my gosh, it's huge. Like, the grounds are huge. The house is huge. It's It, it looks very, like, old and Victorian almost. Uh, 
but at the same time, kind of like a, a Garden of Eden almost. It's, it's so lush and, and overgrown. Well, did you find, uh, I found that when I was looking at this, <clears throat> and again, it's through the black and white and the beauty of the uh, cinematography, the castle was both beautiful, the castle and the grounds were both beautiful, but they were also kind of overpowering because of the black and white. And I've been, uh, just on the side, I've been watching Downton Abbey over the years, and that place looks really friendly uh, and, and pleasant. This place had a aura about it of, of uh, not being a good place at all. Well, even I think, though it's beautiful. I think the word like that, that I was thinking of was like corruption. It, it just felt like on the outside it was really beautiful, but on the inside it was it was not. It was, and and that whole motif of the roses that I that I didn't really pick up on the first time, but after watching the making of like documentary, there are a lot of scenes with the white roses and the petals falling off the roses, yes. and I think that's just a metaphor for the movie in terms of the beauty, but at the same time, the decay that's happening. There's only like three or four staff there. I think there's like a cook and a maid and then the housekeeper and a gardener. But that's that's not enough people to maintain that huge house and grounds, I don't think. The roses to me were the, a perfect metaphor for the house and the grounds and kind of the beautiful decay that was happening. Well, even the, uh, I picked this up after watching the documentary, even the disinterested uncle had a beautiful white rose in his lapel. Oh, yeah, you're right. It, it started there, and then it kind of carried through the whole movie. And I, in my note that I sent you, um, the place looked uh, moody, scary, weird, and I'd never want to stay in a place like that even <laughs> for one night. No, me either. It looks haunted, <laughs> for sure. Yeah, it does. Oh man, and and then the creep factor starts like kicking in right as she's yes. she gets out of the carriage to she wants to walk from kind of oh, a ways stop. out. Please stop. Go there. If you don't mind, I think I'd like to walk from here. As you wish, please. Go. From the house because she's never been to some place as big and as beautiful as this, and she's walking and she hears this disembodied voice calling. kind of sent chills up my my neck no there and, were so many scenes that sent those same chills up my neck it's like wow i gosh it, it, it's one of these movies where almost every scene could be one of my favorite scenes <laughs> i know did you notice and i again i didn't notice this until i watched the uh making of the movie that miss miss gibbon's clothes the color and style of her clothes change through the movie. It starts where she's wearing more of a, a really nice kind of a light and airy looking outfit, but near the uh, halfway point and later, her clothes are beginning to get blacker and blacker, and and more subdued. Yeah, I didn't I, notice I, that I, until you mentioned it. But you're yeah, you're absolutely uh, right. The thing they did reinforce this creepy factor. Well, not only did her clothes change, but just the whole tone of the film got darker a lot of it at the end was happening at night 
Mm-hmm. And you yep. know she's wandering around the, the hallways. It's almost like a maze, and you're never quite sure what she's going to see around the next corner. There's no way you could pay me any money to go walking around that maze with those candles. Oh my it was god! It's dark. And I thought every time she stopped or looked somewhere, we were going to see something else. And not only that, but she does the <clears throat> classic haunted house thing where she goes and looks for the ghost, or she goes and looks for the sound. Yes. Like, what, what are you doing? I would run the opposite <laughs> direction. I'd be, I'd be getting in the carriage and heading for town. And a part of that that just really creeped me out is she looks in one of the rooms, and there is some, a figure that moves, kind of wrapped in some kind of a black cape and head. Just You see it just for a moment. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, my God. Well, even the first time that we see the, the ghost, because uh, they were – we can jump ahead a little bit here because basically – she gets set up in a in a room. I thought it was a little bit odd that she's sharing a room with Flora, even though there's like 50 other rooms that she could choose from. Then we find out that Miles uh, has been away at school, but he's going to be coming back. And it was Flora again has some great lines where she's presaging the return of her brother Miles. <laughs> The other one just as remarkable. I mean, is he too as enchanting? Oh, well, if you like this one, we should be quite carried away by Master Miles. <laughs> I seem to be carried away quite easily. That's what happened to me in London. <laughs> Miles is coming! Miles is coming! Stuff and nonsense, Miss. You know very well Miles is at school now. Hold still. <laughs> A letter shows up saying that yeah, he's been he's been ejected from school. Uh, we're not going to tell you why exactly, other than to say that he's an injury to others. And, uh, and uh, Miss Gibbons says that he's a contamination and a corruption. And I'm like, wow, that's pretty hard no about a little kid. But when we see Miles, he's very sweet. Uh, but Miss Gibbons starts to act strange, like, as soon as Miles shows up. And on the carriage ride home from the train station when they're picking Miles up, uh, it was very uncomfortable, almost like flirty kind of way that they were acting with each other. Look, Miles, there's the leaf. Oh, it is nice to be back. I hope you won't be lonely with just Flora and Mrs. Gross and me. Were you happy at school? May I tell you something? Yes, Miles, of course. I think you're far too pretty to be a governess. And I think you're far too young to be such a deceitful flatterer. <laughs> that was really creepy. Huh? Yeah, she's you know she's like forty and he's what ten or eleven or ten or twelve something, something like that. that. And but then, is he possessed by that ghost? Well, that's the question that keeps coming up. Is like <laughs> why is he so strange? But we kind of find out that he's kind of a sad little kid at the same time because they're they've been out playing and and it's his first day back and they've been having fun and and Miss Gibbons comes in to tuck him in good night. And she wants to talk to him about why he got ejected from school. And Miles starts talking about the fact that his uncle just doesn't care about him at all. You realize that it is a very serious matter for a boy to be expelled from school? I can't think what your uncle will say. Can't you? I can. He'll say, don't bother me, I'm too busy. Miles, that's not true. Isn't it? You've met him, haven't you? You know what he's like. He doesn't care about me or Flora. He doesn't care what happens to us. Miles, dear, 
You mustn't believe that. Your uncle has... Well, he has a great many responsibilities and not enough time to... waste any on us. I understand. It's a bit sad, though, when people don't have time for you. Oh, I have, Miles. I have time. And I care. And, Miles, if there's something wrong about school, if there's something you want to tell me... Miles, dear Miles, can't you see that I want to help you? gone out. Don't be frightened. It was only the wind, my dear. The wind blew it out. And he says, it's a bit sad, though, when someone doesn't have time for you. And he's crying. Yeah. I just felt really bad for him at that point. But this is... so. I almost think that's kind of the end of the first act of the movie, because you get hints of weirdness and, and creepiness up to that point, but then things really kick into high gear the next day. Uh, because uh, Miss Gibbons is out in the garden cutting roses, of course, because they seem to have, like, a huge rose garden. And she's hearing something strange, and then she looks up to the tower of this house, and all of the sound in the movie stops. It's just the rustling of her dress, and there's no other sound. And she looks up to the top of the tower, and it's obscured by the sun. She sees somebody at the top of the tower, and we can't tell if it's Miles or, or, or who it is. And I just thought to myself, wow, that's an amazing use of sound to just create that eerie, creepy feeling. It really is. I uh, also noticed when we looked at that documentary, you remember the birds? flew kind of by to obscure the view in slow motion. Yeah. And I guess that was strictly an accident. They ran out of film. <laughs> and, near, and at the end, I guess it, speed, it sped up. So it gave the effect of the birds in slow motion. And they really liked it. Yeah. It was an, a it was an it was accident. A, it was a happy accident. <laughs> Even though that, that was an obscure figure, it looked more like an adult to me. Oh, totally. Totally. Yeah. But... But when she runs up to the top of the tower, a couple minutes later, Miles is up there with all these pigeons. And he's like, no, nobody's been up here but me. Maybe it's yeah. just maybe it's just you. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe it's both of us, I tell you. And then they get into this discussion about um, secrets. And I thought that was an interesting discussion because the kids were asking her about where she grew up. And, and she's saying that... Your house, where you used to live. Was that a big house, too? No, it was very small, I'm afraid. How small? Very, very small. Too small for you to have secrets? <laughs> well, secrets were a bit difficult. But possible? Not for long. 
Secrets require a privacy that our little home did not provide. Did you play games in your house? No, we had to be quiet, usually, because my father was preparing his sermon. But if he went out, we'd play hide-and-seek all over the house. Oh, lovely! Let's do that. All right. You hide, and I'll seek. Kind of implies that the kids have a lot of secrets. Because <laughs> they have a lot of privacy. Uh, and then they they decide that they're going to play hide-and-seek. And this scene just reinforces my dislike for clowns. Because yes. <laughs> that doll, that creepy clown doll, that the head is like bobbing back and forth when she's out looking for the kids, and she opens up this uh, maybe like an attic uh, room. Oh man, that was creepy. It made me. And then, and then we get that first view of the ghost. She goes back downstairs, and she's. It's her turn to hide, and she's by the window that leads out to the patio. And she starts hearing some weird sounds, and the kids are laughing like maniacally somewhere in the house. And then you just see over the corner of her head this figure appear, <gasps> and he slowly walks up to the window. And man, that was so oh, scary. I know. <clears throat> that really was. I remember seeing that when I first saw it uh, years ago. <clears throat> it really was scary because it, it, it looked so surreal. That guy was intense, too, the actor that played that. The guy that played Quint, he was he was yes. really creepy. Oh man! And then there's some great use of reflections uh, in mirrors and in glass doors and windows, and that's throughout the whole movie. I noticed. Um. So what do you think up to this point? So now she's seen a ghost. Are you thinking that that there's ghosts in the house, or what are you thinking? Like when you're watching it. Well, uh, several things. One is I'd be out of there quicker than you could say jackrabbit. <laughs> uh, but secondly, I, yeah, now I'm thinking there there is at least one ghost and uh, maybe more. Then another thing is I can never get oriented to where she is in the house when she's wandering around. And I can never get clear on where the kids were when they were laughing and going on and on. It was just, it was all very confusing and I, th I think that was by intent, by yeah. the director. I think so, too. And But you, I did think there was a ghost when he shows up at the window. And then, and then uh, Miss, Miss, uh, uh, Gibbons, Miss Gibbons says to Mrs. Gross, you know, I saw this man, and I know that, that he was there. And Mrs. Gross says, Quint is dead. Flora and Miles are standing on the railing on the stairs above, and they're laughing hysterically. It's like something is going on there with those kids. It yeah. feels like the ghost and the two kids are just using their powers to uh, control the two women. Yeah, like manipulate them or something. And, no. And, yeah, to get to your point earlier, I think Mrs. Gross is definitely in on something, and she's not saying what, and she, she doesn't want to talk about Quint and she doesn't want to talk about the other governess that was there that had died. And she just kind of wants to just pretend like everything's okay and, and everything's going to be fine and happy. <laughs> yeah. 
It's not. It, it's not in any way going to turn out well. So some time passes and they're, it's been raining and they're stuck inside and they're getting crabby and Miles gets really cross with Flora and, and kind of mean with her and Mrs. Gib- Miss Gibbons decides to give them a break from their schoolwork and they're going to pretend that it's Flora's birthday. They are going to dress up and have like this dress up uh, birthday party. And while the kids are off in the attic looking for things to wear for dress up, supposedly that's what they're doing. They seem to be gone for quite a long time though. Uh, Miss Gibbons and Miss Gross start talking about Quint, and Miss Gibbons says that the children never mention him. Mrs. Gross says that Quint took advantage of them, and that there were things happening around in the house that that she wishes that she hadn't seen. Uh, Yeah. uh, Mrs. Gross says that there were rooms used by daylight as if they were dark woods, and I just thought, wow, that's an amazing line. That's that's got to be Truman Capote <laughs> that wrote that. I have a feeling that that uh, Quint and Miss Jessel were having an affair, and uh, that 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 line refers to that. Oh, totally. That's exactly what yeah. it refers to. But it says it in such a way that it makes you feel like it was more than that. Like there were yeah. there were things going on that shouldn't happen in the daylight. You know. <laughs> It just adds to the overall suspense for me. Well, and we kind of find out at this point that the kids probably saw some of this, of what was going on, and also that Quint was sort of in charge of the household, and that he's not a nice man, that he was beating up Mrs. Uh, Miss Jessel, and he was he was swearing and, and was just kind of a vile person. And so all that was, so all that was happening, and... So by this time, I was thinking, well, you know, these kids were probably abused, you know, at least mentally abused, if not more, you know, physically abused, which could explain a lot of their weird, creepy behavior. Yes. So then I started thinking, well, maybe there aren't ghosts. Maybe it's just that uh, the kids are weird because they had this really uh, terrible thing happen to them. And uh, we find out also that Miles was the one that found quint after he'd been killed or was dead i don't know if he was murdered or he uh mrs mrs gross says that uh, quint fell and hit his head that seems really suspicious to me like uh maybe maybe somebody hit him in the head there there, there's just all these parts of the movie that was he killed was he not killed who was involved in that are there ghosts are there not ghosts is miss gibbons going crazy no did 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 Miss Jessel kill herself in the lake, or did somebody yeah. like throw her in the lake? <laughs> there's a, there's so many moving parts to this, to the beauty of it. Oh actually. my gosh, it's that's what made it great. It's not that there were any uh, amazing special effects or anything like that. It was just great sound design, great directing, great cinematography, great dialogue, great acting. Really ambiguous plot that leaves a lot of things open to your imagination and miss miss gibbons is beginning to slip away as well yeah so once they have that um that party and miles does this really creepy super weird poem yeah that kind of makes miss uh, gibbons think that he knows that there's a ghost in the house then we get into this i think probably that closes the second uh, part of the movie and we get into the last part of the movie where at first, 
Miss Gibbons is of the mind that she's going to return to London and face uh, the uncle and tell him all these things that have happened and make him come out to the country house and take care of it. And Mrs. Gross is begging her not to do that. And because also Miss Gibbons wants to bring the priest in on it, or the minister, I forget what his title is, but you know, Miss Gross, Mrs. Gross definitely doesn't want anybody else in the village to know about what's been going on at the country house. She's getting ready to pack up and go to London when she's up in the schoolroom, and she and here we here we go again with another really super creepy scene. Oh, I know. We see Mrs. Jessel, Miss Jessel, sitting behind the teacher's desk crying. And we never get a full-on view of her face. It's just her hair is pulled over, her head's kind of bowed down. And it totally reminded me of The Ghost from the Grudge, that movie about the the oh right that right. Japanese horror movie that was remade. And and you never yep. really get to see the girl's face until the very end, but that was really creepy. Well, and the, the the way they did it too, she just boom, she shows up. She just boom. appears, yeah. Yeah. And then she uh, then she walks over to the desk like she wants to go like touch or talk to this ghost. And then as soon as she gets to the desk, the ghost is gone. But there are tear stains on the on the papers on the desk. It's, um, so that tells me well, I guess there really is a ghost. Again, it I have no clue what is really real real and what is it? Well, see, because I still don't, that still doesn't convince me that there were ghosts, because what if it was just Mrs. Uh, Miss Gibbons crying at the desk? True. <laughs> yeah. We'll never know. So, for some reason, this is like a turning point where she says, no, I'm going to take care of this myself. I can save the kids. What All they need to do, she has this plan, is face up to the fact that they can see the ghosts. And if they can, if they can face up to the fact that they can see the ghosts... That will take the power away from the ghosts, and they will go away. So she tries to do this with Flora. So did you. How did you get here, dear? In the boat. Miss, Miss And when did you learn to row, Laura? Miles taught me. Why did you come here? I always come here when I want to dance, when I want to be alone. And who gave you that music box? I don't think I remember. Miss Oh, yes, I do. It was Mrs. Gross. No, it was not. Wasn't it, Miss Gibbons, dear? And where, my pet, is Miss Jessel? Where is she, Flora? Where is she? You know you can see her. Miss. Look, Flora, look. There. 
You know you can see her. I can't, I can't. Admit it. She's there. You know you can see her. I can't, I can't. But look, she's there. Laura flips out and has like a serious like breakdown and is crying for like a whole day. And uh, Mrs. Uh, uh, Gross is saying, I've never seen her like this before. What did you do? What, you know, you've scared her to death. And Miss Gibbons is like, no, no, she she needed this. She needs to face up to the fact that there are ghosts. And and I just felt like uh, Miss Miss Gr Mrs. Gross at this point thinks that Miss Gibbons is like losing her mind, you know. And all the while that Flora's not only crying, but it's kind of like a wailing. Oh yeah, it's more than just crying. It's like yeah, totally. Oh, maybe maybe Miss Gibbons is being possessed by Miss Jessel. Oh yeah, I hadn't thought about that. I mean, maybe, <laughs> maybe there are enough unknown things here. She's becoming possessed, and Miles is being possessed by Quint. Oh my gosh! Oh. Yeah, maybe I hadn't thought about that. That's a good one. Uh, but but Miss Gibbons decides that okay, Miss Mrs. Gross and Flora, you need to go back to London. You need to get away from this house. This house is is bad news. You just can't be here anymore. And I'm going to stay here alone with miles and i was like what like you think that's a good idea <laughs> no don't do that oh gosh i thought that was a terrible idea i don't know uh that anybody would like these days let the, let her do that in the first place but you know who knows this adds to my theory that she's becoming possessed by miss jessel who wants to be alone with miles who's quint Oh man, I'm, you're you're swaying me to your ideas here. <laughs> I feel like Rod Serling. <laughs> uh, so then we get so basically, Miss Gibbons is going to try to do the same thing with Miles that she did with Flora. She wants to. Well, she says, I guess, based on your theory, she says she wants to get Miles to admit to his bad behavior at school and also to the fact that. It's Quint that's making him act the way he's acting. And we get this really weird, uncomfortable scene where they're having tea. And Miles says, Well, you're afraid. And perhaps you made them so. And of what? Assuming you are right. Of what am I afraid, Miles? I'm not a mind reader, my dear. I've told you that before. But I do sense things. Don't worry, there's a man in the house. And you immediately think, well, yeah, it's Quint. Is there? Yes, me. I'll protect and you. And then you're like, oh, so maybe you are Quint. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Yikes. <laughs> I'd say it is fun. We've got the whole house to ourselves. More or less. There are still the others. And he goes to reach his hand across the table, like he wants to hold her hand. And then just about as she's to touch his hand, he pulls it away and, like, slaps this, like, jello thing that's in yes. the middle of the table. And it's it's sort of like almost putting her in her place. Like, yeah, he, <clears throat> he is in charge here. And I thought that I, was... I felt the same way, yeah. Very disquieting. You know, there was a scene earlier, and I, I, I missed it in my second viewing, but where... 
they kiss, and it was supposed to be just like a little peck, but it was more of like a long, drawn out. I know. And that was really creepy and uncomfortable. Uh, but it it it's it, it gets to be night, and Miss Gibbons is like, okay, I've gotta I've gotta do this. I've gotta get him to admit. I want to know what happened at school. And they're in this greenhouse, and and she's just like mercilessly like interrogating him about what happened at school. Must be because I'm different. But you aren't. You're like any other boy. Ah, now who isn't telling the truth? If you really thought that, we wouldn't be having these conversations. No, my dear, you don't think I'm like any other boy. That's why you're afraid. If I am, it's for you. And I am afraid for you, Miles. If you don't tell me now... There's nothing. Isn't there? Why did you take my letter? You did take it, didn't you? I took it. Why? To see what you said about us. Us? About me. And what did you discover? You thanked my uncle for trusting you. You apologized for troubling him, for asking him to come down. Go on, Miles. What else did I say? That's all I read. I heard footsteps. I threw it on the fire. And did you take other things? Is that what you did at school? No, I'm not a thief. Then what did you do, Miles? I... I said things. Yes, Miles. Sometimes I heard things. And sometimes at night. Everything was dark. What? They screamed. The masters heard about it. They said, I frightened the other boys. And when did you first see and hear of such things? Why, I... I made them up. Who taught them to you? She backs him up so against the wall. And it, again, head. it's like a greenhouse. It's all windows. They? And he's had enough. Shall and he just lashes out at her and says you? some really terrible things. And then... Shall I tell you who taught you? The things you've done? The things you've said? Shall I tell you his name? You don't fool me. I know why you keep on and on. It's because you're afraid. You're afraid you might be mad. So you keep on and on. Trying to make me admit something that isn't true. Trying to frighten me the way you frightened Flora. But I'm not Flora. I'm no baby. You think you can run to my uncle with a lot of lies. But he won't believe you. Not when I tell him what you are. A damn hussy. A damn dirty-minded hag. You never fool As he's saying those things, you can see Quint (laughs) in the window behind him. Almost like he's directing Miles to say these things. On his face. Yeah. Oh. Wow. And then, and then Miss Gibbons feels bad, and, and Miles is crying, and he runs out of the greenhouse. And uh, huge, huge spoiler alert here: if you haven't seen this movie, uh, stop now and go watch it, and come back because we're going to talk about the ending uh, here. And it was a shocker to me because I did not see this coming. But he kind of like 
trips a little bit, and he, I couldn't tell if he hit his head there, but I feel like uh, when he's running out of the greenhouse and down the steps and he falls, he does kind of hit his head on the ground. And I think that's kind of an important thing. If, if he did hit his head because of what happens at the very end of the movie... Miss Gibbons, they're in this uh, garden, and it's kind of a, a ring of hedges and these really creepy statues. No! No! He's here! For the last time, he's here! No, no, he's dead! He's here, and you must say his name! And Miles is kind of trying to escape from this ring of hedges. And Miss Gibbons is, is, again, just on him and just pestering him. Tell me, tell me who, tell me you see him. Tell me that he's here. Tell me his name. You need to say his name. And he turns around and looks up and looks to where Miss Gibbons is looking. And she says, he's here, he's here. And then Miles says, Peter, Peter Quint. And then he kind of staggers away from Miss Gibbons. And then we get this over the shoulder shot above Peter Quint, who's standing on the, the hedges or something above the, above miles and, and Miss Gibbons. And he puts his hands out like he's going to grab them or something. And then all of a sudden miles collapses and Miss Gibbons is so relieved. And she says, it he's gone miles. You're safe. You're free. I have you. He's lost you forever. Miles. And then this uh, absolute look of horror comes over her face. No! Right up to that minute, I was like, no, no, he didn't. <laughs> he did it. And I was, and, and Tim and I were watching this together, and, and, uh, and I was just like in, in bed going, no way, no way, this is, this can't be. And yep, sure enough, Miles is dead. I know. Wow. It's overwhelming, and it's also, if I think back on it, maybe this is how Quint died. Because oh, he hit his head, you know, and it was in the patio. But but did you see that? Did you think that he was going to die at the end? I mean, when you were in no. the theater? Oh, my no. Gosh, no, not at all. No. How is she going to explain that to, like, how is she going to explain that to the uncle and to Mrs. Gross and to Flora? I mean. And to the police. The police. She's going to be uh, put in some kind of a restraint and probably put in prison or, or at least put on trial. Well, and and to just top it off as if that wasn't enough. I mean, at that I point, know. I was like totally shocked. And then, what does she do? She like passionately kisses him, and that was like the topper for me. That was like, okay, all right, this movie is awesome. <laughs> I'm loving this movie because it just totally shocked me. And then, unexpected ending, and yeah, it was great. I loved it. And then she puts her hands together. And then that and cycles the, back to the beginning of the film. To the beginning of the film. And I'm like, wow. I mean, I, I'm amazed that people 
are so creative in doing their the movie to put this together. I mean, I will never know how many different things were going on there. <clears throat> so you know, I mean, we we don't know whether there were ghosts or not. We don't know whether she was losing her mind or not. We don't know if Mrs. Gross had anything to do with these deaths or not. We don't know what happened with the kids. Uh, everything is inferred. Everything is sort of like, mm-hmm. you know, could it be in her mind? You know, could there was even a point during the movie when I was like, are the kids even real? Like, is this whole thing like happening in in, in Ms. Skibbon's head? head? Kind of like an M Night Shyamalan kind of like uh, yeah. thing where yeah. you come to the end and you're like, no, this everything you thought that ha- was happening, that's not what was happening. <laughs> but, Never did. Yeah. Well, then to continue with all the unknowns, what was the role of the uncle? Yeah. How did their parents die? Yep. What else has happened in this house over the years that makes it so full of corruption and decay? It's got about 17 layers of unknown elements to it. So the second time I watched it, I came away with the theory that, like my, my main theory was that she was way in over her head. Like maybe she was super repressed like I'm talking about Miss Gibbons, um, she got to this job and was totally overwhelmed. At the same time, the kids were messed up because of what they'd seen and heard from Quint and Miss Jessel. So they were just weird. And everything kind of combined together to drive her crazy. And there were no ghosts. The kids weren't possessed. She she ended up killing Miles you know, uh, accidentally by the way she was acting at the end. And that was kind of my theory, but after talking about it with you, now I'm, I'm, I'm totally confused again, and I don't know if that's what I think anymore. Well, we could probably watch it ten more times, never get a result. And I remember the commentator on that documentary said that's exactly what he was going for. Well, and, and the, the director and the script. And the commentator said that they had a different opening originally, which was uh, a shot of Miss Gibbons at a, a funeral. And they were putting like a small coffin into the ground, and she was crying. And after they had watched that, they said, "No, the, that that gives too much away. That doesn't. That's not the right way to open it." And then that's where they came up with this uh, really atmospheric, weird opening, which is way a million times better than that other opening would have been. Oh yes, because you don't know until the last second or the last minute how it's going to turn out. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So well, I, 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 I gave think, it a, I gave it a ten out of ten. Yeah, you can tell us by the my gushing praise for this movie. I would give it a ten out of a ten as well. And what a fan, <clears throat> what a fantastic recommendation to uh, watch this movie. I can see why People Magazine uh, had an article about it just a few weeks ago. Yes, I'm glad that we included it because I probably wouldn't have thought of it. So it, it's well worth watching. I wouldn't watch it alone for the first time in a dark room, though. I actually think it's better to watch it with somebody because, uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah, you definitely want to like have somebody you can talk to about it afterwards. Otherwise, you're going to go uh, crazy trying to figure out what you think happened. Next time, we are going to be watching another black and white movie, The Good Earth. With uh, Paul Muni. Paul Muni. And I, I've already been doing some research on this movie because... Uh, well, I, I love the book. The book is so great. And this movie gets a lot of good reviews. And even though the the main actor 
who's playing a Chinese man uh, is Caucasian. A lot of the comments on IMDb from Asian American people were like, "It's you know, it didn't bother me that much because this was a huge, big budget film, and they needed to be able to you know sell it to." Uh, an audience and Paul Muni was was well known at the time and it was, would have been a draw to the movie. Well, I was just going to say he was like at the top of the box office uh, for, pe- for you know for bringing people into the theater. So that was that made a lot of sense why they would have cast him and also there was uh, praise for the fact that they hired a large uh, contingency of Asian uh, actors for like the background scenes and the the crowd scenes and. So, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty excited about watching this one. We'll be back in two weeks, and I'll let you do the uh, closing. All right, well, thanks for listening. And, again, this was uh, Matt Johnson. And Bob Johnson. And uh, this is Classic Movie Reviews at ClassicMovieReviews.net, or just look for us on iTunes. Search for Classic Movie Reviews. Have a great week of movie watching. We lay my love and I be